Episode 4, Hannibal And welcome back to Creative Credit, a show dedicated to conversations with talent from across the comic book industry. Artists, writers, inkers, colorists, letterers, and more. I'm your host, Chad Bokelman. In this, our fourth episode, we'll be conversing with Hannibal Taboo, creator working on such comics as Time Core, Irrational Numbers, and Scoundrel from Wonderman, Menthu, The Foundation, Project Wildfire, and more from the Operative Network, and co-writer on the upcoming trade paperback Minneapolis Sound from Humanoids. Hannibal, as you'll soon discover, is a man of many talents, and a quick search of his name across places such as YouTube will wholly back me up on that claim. I had an absolute blast conversing with Hannibal and learning about his outlook on this industry and just life in general. But before we get there, I wanted to comment briefly on my extended absence. It's been almost exactly two years since the last episode of Creative Credit, my conversation with Zach Kaplan, has aired. I'd say that I bit off more than I could chew, but that's just frankly not the case. This show isn't too much for me. In fact, behind the scenes, this is the passion project outside of the Lantern cast I wish to continue the most. I truly love speaking with creators about this industry and their works. You guys know I'm willing to talk with any creator, any project, anytime. But my absence does need some context. Firstly, I was trying very hard to speak with a woman working within the comics industry. I reached out to a few and either got no response, or in the case of a couple of creators, I polite declined due to some shyness or just uneasiness of their command of the English language. I'm a big fan of women creating in the industry, and the storytelling and art that we've been given over the last several years is a knockout on so many levels, and I was just hell-bent that the next several episodes absolutely needed to showcase that passion. Second, my job changed. I got promoted, and while that's a great thing, my responsibilities increased and my focus shifted, and then of course we have COVID. And I had to switch to work from home. I got a new office set up. I actually have a new desk, new tech, new keyboard, new mouse, new mouse pad, monitor, mic stand, everything, and more. But lastly, the really big thing was my health. Now, listeners of the Lantern Cast know in early 2020, I was sent to the ER and came away with a diagnosis of diverticulitis. A few infections, a wound vac, a partial colectomy later, and supposedly I'm good to go. So I do appreciate your concern. And, oh, did I mention during all of that, I got a brand new nephew, my first. So I've been focused on spending time with my new favorite person in the world. But back to the show. I've actually been doing some thinking, clearly. I want to expand even more what we talk about and who we talk to. So to that end, stay tuned after the conversation to learn more about the upcoming episodes. But now, without further ado, I present to you 
my conversation with Hannibal Taboo. All right, guys, on the line now with us, we have Hannibal Taboo. Hannibal, you have worked for, oh man, everybody, New Paradigm Studios, Aspen Comics, Top Cow, Wonderman, The Operative Network, and now over at Humanoids. Uh, I, I could go through all of your credits if we wanted to, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how much time we've got. Um, so You'd know welcome, better than I. Yeah, well, well, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I, I'm happy to have you, man. I, I told you before we got started that I had a sort of unique way I, I've done uh, that. I, that, I, that I want to talk to you. I've done some research, and obviously, I found out some stuff. Uh, you know, watch some old interviews with you and things like that. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to set up uh, rather than starting necessarily with with the top cow thing uh, or any of that stuff. I actually wanted to kind of frame your your uh, your career thus far under something that you have done a lecture on the david blake rule if, ah if it don't favorite. make that's right if it don't make dollars it don't make sense uh, <laughs> so i i watched a part of that i didn't get a chance to watch the whole thing because i was watching multiple different videos but i watched a part of that and hell i mean the david blake rule just makes sense because there's a couple of places we can go with it but the first place i wanted to go was where comics stand now um this is very timely to talk about a little bit, but we have things going on like release the Snyder cut, restore the Snyder verse, uh, release the air cut. And those are all films, of course, but it seems like we're in this era now where fans are demanding that I want it this, I want this and I want it this way. And if it's going to trend, then that then equals money. Now you have a unique position in this. And not only are you a creator, you're also a journalist who's worked for comic book resources as well mm-hmm. as bleeding cool. So mm-hmm. let's talk a bit about where the comics industry is right now and how it's affected you personally and what you're seeing as a reviewer as well. Well, the first thing I have to do is a lot of people have a very strong confusion between fame and fortune. They are not always the same thing. There are many people, there are many YouTube influencers who have had millions and millions of views and hundreds of thousands of supporters who have served me crepes as caterers uh, at events uh, because notoriety and discussion does not equal money. For all of the furor and love and, and tweets and adoration over the Snyder Cut, the people who saw it didn't pay any more than their regular HBO Max subscription. And if I believe I remember I looked correctly, I believe that uh, there was another project that came on HBO Max that actually had significantly more new subscribers around the time of it. Um, there is a desire for people to impact the entertainment that they're making without actually making the entertainment because that's a drastically different degree of work. Um, those people are wrong. Those people are uh, are facing the kind of westernized entitlement that makes people around the world hate Americans. And uh, it's, it's unfortunate in many ways. What I don't want to do is discount the passion. The number one thing that drives everything in the comics industry and lots of things in the entertainment industry is passion. We do these things because we love it. I've said many times you don't make comics because you want to. You make comics because you have to. It's not a job. It's a calling. 
So with the things that I've seen in the reviews, first of all, over the last year, given the pandemic and given some of the business relationship, business challenges rather, I've seen myself go from reading 70 comics a week to reading 40 comics a week because there's less stuff in the market. The big two are putting out fewer things. The independents likewise are being battered by uh, Diamond, their centralized quote unquote bank, not being able to provide them the, the love and the credit that they once offered through uh, retailers and whatnot. The business model is changing. And with Marvel pulling out of Diamond, it is changing further. For me personally, um, as a journalist, that means I get to go to sleep a little earlier. Uh, as a creative, that means that I have to look at like, okay, I just signed a deal with Second Sight Publishing to be in comic book stores in November. If Marvel's out of the direct market, will we be able to use Diamond to get to comic stores in November? I don't know. And frankly, neither does Diamond. So for me, it's introduced a number of elements into my work that are chaotic, but good, because as with the David Blake rule itself, if it doesn't make dollars, it can't make sense. I have to either evolve or accept that I will die. That's, that's interesting. That's interesting. So you say going from, let's say, was it really 70 books? Uh, I mean, I would, I, I'm only asking because being a, being a comics journalist, I would assume you are reading quite a bit more than maybe the average person. So has it really dropped from like a, around 70 to 40? There was a period a few years ago, and my wife remembers this when I would sometimes be up to like five and six in the morning, that I was doing 90 books a week. Uh, oh. Like the, out, the output was insane. And the reason why I specifically noted the numbers was because as an independent creator, I heard retailers say, I'm sorry, I can't buy your indie book. There's a new X-Men crossover. I'm sorry, I can't buy your indie book. I got 52 DC books to put out this week and so on and so forth. So with the diminishment of product coming from the big two, retailers have to sell something. And many of them are in desperate places. Many of them have pivoted to collectibles. Some of them have pivoted deeper into their back issue catalogs. And a very smart number of them have decided, let's see what these independents have to say. Mm -hmm. And as such, you're getting companies like Big Distro, which is a black owned distribution company that has risen during this time. You're getting new voices that are finally saying, wait, okay, maybe I can finally get a, a shot at those shelves that were once crowded out by 77 Batman books. I'm imagining, so I, 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 look, I, have, to, I have to admit, I'm guilty of it too. Is, is the, the variance thing, the variance becoming a bigger deal, is that also hurting things from an industry standpoint and, and just kind of choking out the room for the, the smaller publishers? The variance, uh, well, ever since we first saw them really come into vogue in the 90s have, have been a sign of speculation, a sign of, yeah. of unsafe economic health for the industry. I apologize for the noise outside my house. I live in Los Angeles and everything's insane. <laughs> but um, with that, um, variants uh, for retailers are sometimes so hard to get and so hard to deal with that if they're going to get variants, they're going to be locked away. They're not going to put them out on the stands with the regular books where the hoi polloi can see them. Oh, God, no. They're too precious for that. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> And, and even my publisher, Second Sight Publishing, is talk to us about, okay, we love this cover. So how many variants can we do? I'm, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, player. I mean, let's just, let's just get the book out first. Let's not, you know, <laughs> try to price ourselves out. Let's not try to overspend too soon. Um, uh, and that's still an ongoing discussion that we're having because we did agree to some, but, and I haven't actually told anybody that, but I'm not allowed to say. Um, 
but yeah, so variants are less of a challenge and more of like if you if you walk in if you're walking around somewhere right now and you see somebody not wearing a mask and they're coughing, that's what a variant cover is. It's not necessarily something bad, but you're, it's definitely gonna make you worry. I figured, yeah, because it's just, you know, some of these some of these variants are either store exclusives or one in 25s, one in 50s. There's a demand mm-hmm. for them. So then the the small, the, the comic book stores feel like they have to order the 25 or the 50, which is even less room for the smaller publishers. I, I've actually, I, now I'm, I'm not a comic book reviewer, but I've actually been found I've been reading more comics since the pandemic hit. I've, you know, I'm, I've, I'm spending now, obviously, I don't necessarily consider things like image and stuff, smaller publishers, but it basically for a lot of people out there, anything other than Marvel and DC is smaller publisher, but mm-hmm. you've got things like crossover at image. You've got things like uh, the terminal punks over at mad cave studios or witch blood that just came out over at vault uh, and mm-hmm. things like that. And then of course, you know, some of the stuff that you're going to, we're going to talk about tonight that, that you're working on. I, I find it interesting because I kind of want to pivot of the talk a little bit on the on on where we're at in the industry to what you've seen as as a comics journalist at bleeding cool and comic book resources i'm a hundred percent uh upfront with people about mm-hmm. whatever whatever i've talked about in my past whatever my stances are so i'm going to tell you right now i have had in the past problems with cbr or bleeding cool for things specifically relating to clickbait mm-hmm. and i as a kid I wanted to be a journalist for a while to the point where I was looking at colleges to go to school for journalism. And it, it didn't work out for reasons I won't get into, but I was a fan of that industry. Uh, I really love music. So rock, rock journalism and the stuff of the seventies, like cream magazine and Lester bangs mm-hmm. and all that stuff, man. I, I loved all that, but you know, this idea of pure journalism, just in general, this, this, this glorified notion of journalism that a lot of people who are into the field have, is it dead in the comics industry? Is it more about let's help the public, let's maintain the relationship with the publisher and, you know, put out more positive spins on books? Is it, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's get more click, you know, clicks for the, ad- the advertisers on the websites and stuff. And now I don't want to put you in a hard position because I know you work for these websites, but what, what can you say about sort of this uh, jaded feeling that myself and others in the comic fandom have towards uh, comic websites like these? Well, first of all, you're very fortunate to have me who uh, literally uh, I've been running very hot on, on the people I work for. And, and if not biting the hand I, that feeds me, definitely nibbling on it uh, <laughs> since, since I was at Rap Ages, since I was at the Los Angeles Sentinel back in the 90s. But um, with that in mind, Pure journalism can only happen if it's, state, if it's sponsored by the state. There is no way that uh, commercial journalism can be pure because of, unfortunately, the David Blake rule itself. Um, if it bleeds, it sells is one of the things that you learn, unfortunately, in journalism. As much as you want to tell much more important stories, as much as you want to tell uh, uh, review, the, the, like, I'll give you a perfect example. I'm reviewing a book called Aletheia which is uh, by a young woman named Christina Stepet. I can't remember how I pronounce her last name, but it's called Aletheia. It's only on Comixology. It's the weirdest, strangest indie comic of all. And I've, I've, or I also did another book uh, a few weeks ago called Cello. And these are books that you're not going to see in comic book stores. Stores won't order them under any circumstances. Sometimes they're digital only, and they're really creative, and they're really brilliant, and the reviews that I write about them will get next to zero traffic. 
And I recognize that and I do it anyway because I have the freedom to do so. On the other hand, Bleeding Cool and Combook Resources are owned by companies that want money. And while they can sometimes subsidize somebody like me to be crazy enough to run off and review Aletheia or Cello, they know that, you know, they got to get something about Hugh Jackman's abs or they got to get something about, you know, Goldberg and wrestling or they got to have something to get the butts in the seats. I've discovered this likewise in a clubhouse room that I run with Dr. Stanford Carpenter, who's an anthropologist who worked in comics. We want to talk about deeper themes and deeper meanings, but people show up when you put King and Black in them. People show up when you put Batman in them. And that's just the way of the, 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 the thing. The jaded feeling that you're feeling is not necessarily bad, but it is anti-commercial. It is anti-capitalist, which again, I'm not going to say is a bad thing, but uh, until we can have a PBS sort of model for comics journalism, where uh, it is not funded by clicks, it is not funded by advertising, but it's funded by the people that it supports, then you're going to get clickbait. It's going to happen. Um, it's unfortunate. I wish it wasn't the case. And I certainly don't write it myself, uh, but I know the writers who do. I also know writers like Caitlin Rossberg, who's doing amazing work. I know writers like uh, Joanna Draper Carlson, who's been doing it longer than I have, who's never, ever, ever gone into the clickbait direction. And these are journalists that will tell you, yeah, I can't get paid doing this. I can't get any money doing this. I can't get advertised support. I can't get this because nobody will buy it. And that's an unfortunate capitalistic realism, but you know, it is what it is. So I always tell people, you don't like it, vote with your dollars. Let's see what you really support. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's just what it comes down to the end of the day. I like, so we've got with creative credit. This is, this would be episode four here uh, officially, but uh, I also do a podcast that many people who listen to the show know called The Lantern Cast. And The Lantern Cast has been collectively on the air for 12 years. Mm-hmm. So we've been doing this since before podcasting was cool <laughs> and everybody had one but you, you and I you know and, and this is more to the, the listening audience than than to you but you guys out there try doing a podcast about comics not just about comics but about a specific property from a specific publisher and then you try and get sponsors and see who will pay so you can make money off your podcast. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So in the same way that, you know, writing comics for the for the joy of it for a lot of people, a lot of podcasters do it for the same thing. At the very least, the Lantern Cast wouldn't be going for 12 years if we didn't enjoy what we were doing. Because there's a lot of stuff out there, Lantern-wise, that we don't like. But we review it anyways because we just want to keep the fandom going and keep the name out in the culture so more people come onto the title and experience what we really love. And that's actually... A big part of the reason I started this show, Hannibal, I didn't get a chance to tell you this, is when I started this show, because of the Lantern cast, I got press passes to the Comic Cons and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I got to meet so many cool people in Artist Alley. And I'd come up to them and I'd go, man, I love this art or I love this pitch you just gave. I love ABCD. But did you like maybe ink one issue of Green Lantern in the 80s so like I can <laughs> give you a chance to talk on this show? Uh, and I just got so many people. I was just like, why don't we just start a show to talk to anybody in the industry about anything? Mm-hmm. And that's what this has all, always been about. And that's I kind of... A lot of my problems with the industry right now, and this is an industry both you and I love, but have clear mm. problems with, kind of come down to 
the David Blake rule in a way. Yeah. And it's like, from a business perspective, it 100% makes sense. It's logical. It's, it's the way the world works. But as it's in direct opposition to fandom, and you are just so uniquely, you yourself are so uniquely in this position with, with CBR and Bleeding Cool, as well as the stuff you've worked on, the opportunities you've had, and quite frankly, as, as a Black man in diversity, and all this other stuff that is that is becoming, I hate to say in vogue, but let's 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 go there. If you've got a better phrasing, please give it to me because I don't want to stumble over words here. But all of these all of these avenues that you're a part of, it's it's got to be so hard to navigate what you want to tell because i know you're about books with diversity you're about books with depth with some history with with something that you can some meat you can really dig your teeth into but that runs in direct opposition to the blake the david blake rule it does uh but one thing that has always been important to me ever since i wrote my first novel when i was eight years old on notebook paper and it's really terrible and no i won't show it um ever since that point the only real audience I've ever been working for is myself. And if I'm, if someone else likes what I write, that's fantastic. And when people pay me for it, that's even better, but they, that's not why I do it. I'm not there to satisfy them. And if they don't like it uh, at the end of the day, I don't care. Um, I'm writing everything that I do from superhero stuff to reviews to everything to myself. And that's the audience I first have to satisfy. That doesn't mean I don't take other things into account, especially with the reviews, especially with the, the journalism. But um, there is an element, and this is why I really want to stop and, and, and let you know you're underselling yourself in a way. There is a means by which people can do what is called citizen journalism, where we are able to look through the eyes of a person experiencing something in their own way and have that tell the story to other people. If we didn't have that, we would have never seen what happened to Rodney King. We would have never seen what happened to George Floyd. We would have never seen many, many horrible things that have happened, Abu Ghraib and so on and so forth, without citizen journalism. So while people want to discount entertainment journalism as, you know, it's really, it's, it's, it's not important. It is, though, because the very example that you're setting forth in the passion that you put forth in 12 years of focusing on lanterns, 12 years, that's more time than heck probably Jeff Johns has done consistently, but uh, <laughs> in doing so, that shows people one that this is something that is struck a chord, and that is something that's sustainable. In the same way, the journalism that I write and and the books that I write are intended to speak to a, a literary thing. Uh, Shakespeare was not Shakespeare in his day. Christopher Marlowe was the number one play, playwright of his day, and everybody thought Shakespeare was kind of eh, kind of meh, right? How many people talk about Christopher Marlowe nowadays? Mm -hmm. You want to know why? Because his stuff wasn't as good. Popular does not equal good. Britney Spears is not better than Dionne Warwick. That is a fact. It doesn't matter how many records she sells. It doesn't matter what she's capable of doing. She's just not objectively better. And how we know that is time tells the tale. Unless, of course, somebody works very hard to erase people from history, which is a whole other thing. That's a whole other set of arguments. But, uh, yeah, so... In this, uh, in working for these things, I do work against the David Blake rule. I just have to figure out how to make that work. And for me, that's niche casting. The Lantern cast is a, a, a version of that as well. You find out who feels exactly the way I do, and you talk exclusively to them. Unfortunately, 
there are political parties that do the same thing mm. <laughs> to the betterment and or detriment of actual people, whatever. Uh, but yeah, uh, I niche cast and I niche cast very intentionally and I niche cast without any apologies. And I'm like, if you don't like it, I'm sure there's a billion other characters that don't look like mine that you're welcome to latch yourself onto that have nothing to do with me. Because again, at the end of the day, you're not the audience. I am. That's really interesting because it, it you know, I, I started the whole thing off saying it sounds like it runs into direct opposition to the David Blake rule and you're agreeing. It's just, you know, at this, so it's just I, basically what I'm doing for the listeners is I'm painting the picture for you guys of how hard it is just to work in comics uh, and yeah. to, to be, to tell the stories you want to tell. Because so many people out there, and, and you mentioned it actually in your lecture that I saw or, or, or presentation, I don't know how you want to refer to it, of the David Blake rule, which is, uh, you guys can look it up, the David Blake rule, comic book industry economics for creators of color. Uh, that's out on YouTube. You can guys go check that out. You mentioned on there, you know, someone can say, uh, oh man, I can write a better Wolverine book than that. What well, I mean, but can you? <laughs> can, can you really though? Um, people out there say that they can do this, but it's not like, the, the, I remember, and, and this is a controversial name to say because a lot of DC fans really don't like the guy, uh, Dan DiDio. Uh, I was on a small uh, Q&A with him. It was like a paid Q&A that benef uh, benefited a, a comic book charity. Uh, and there was like 10 people that could ask him questions. And one of the things he said that stuck with me is uh, if, you, if you give people the book they want, then they're never going to buy again. If you give them exactly what they want, they're never going to buy it again because they got what they want and they're out. Everything else is not going to be as good. They're going to hate it all and move forward. Now that's an interesting way of viewing it. And there, there can be problems with that viewpoint, but it was just so interesting to me. All of this, all of this stuff runs, you're, you're working for, um, I'm, I'm just trying to find my train of thought here with CBR and bleeding cool. They have these corporate overlords that they're, that they're, uh, they're beholden to. Uh, just put it mildly um, but you work for them and sometimes they'll let you uh, most of the time it sounds like they'll let you publish what you want but a lot of times sometimes I'm assuming or, or I'm sometimes I'm assuming the pressure comes down to you know make this more positive or, or do something like that and then some of the books that you want to do so passionately don't get picked up because it's not going to follow the David Blake rule it's not going to make it's not going to make enough dollars now we have to throw in the fact that you're a black man, because I've talked with Kwanzaa about this. We have all the stuff that's gone on in the industry with uh, specifically Comicsgate and the other kind of things that have risen out of this. I don't, I don't want to give them, uh, I don't want to give them the time of day because it's really not worth it. Um, but at the same time, it's a conversation that's happening that. Um, a bunch of people who don't really understand what they're talking about and don't really understand the histories and, and things like that uh, are, are trying to, to speak up on behalf of other people. And I'm, mm -hmm. not, and I'm not here for that. So I'm going to, I'm basically, basically what I'm saying here is keyword comics gate go. 
<laughs> tear, okay. tear them down, my man. Because I am so done with this. I am so done with this idea that just because we have more characters of diversity, whether that be the color of their skin, their sexual orientation, their sexuality, whatever it may be, their gender, I am so done with the idea that it just means Batman gets worse or Superman gets worse or any of these other things. I'm so done with this idea that you and the talent, look, man, you, I've done the research. You are down with books with depth. Man, I would love something with some history I can chew into, some diversity. Uh, we'll talk about uh, Min Minneapolis Sound later. I love comic books about music, things like that. I'm down for what you're here for. I don't give a shit what your skin color is. <laughs> you know, that's that you, you are telling stuff I want to hear. And the idea that someone with your talent or Kwanzaa's talent or Jeffrey Thorne's talent, so on and so forth, is just there for a diversity hire pisses me the hell off. And I'm just a white dude. I can't imagine what you guys have to experience in this industry right now. And maybe I'm overselling it. Maybe I'm acting too outraged because I don't want to take any ownership over that because it doesn't affect me personally but as a comic book fan who's just fans of who's fans of good content i i i just i don't understand what is happening right now well here's the, here's the thing for me i grew up in memphis tennessee okay and memphis growing up we everybody in my neighborhood understood there were four lines that we tried never to cross one was a little bit south of the border south of haven mississippi to the south of the city in the east, there was a mall called the Raleigh Egypt Mall. We tried not to go past that. And the north, we tried not to go north of, of basically the downtown area. And on the west, we tried not to go past the river. And the reason why was because we knew that, especially after dark, there were populations of people sitting on their uh, porches with shotguns with the idea, come on, Bubba, let's go kill something. These were actual threats. Ethan Van Siver and other people who either do not or cannot uh, reach a, a grandiose audience are not important. Their voices are not important. And I can tell that by this example. Gina Carano, on her day off, got herself fired from a multi-million dollar entertainment franchise and went on to go on to uh, 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 a uh, uh, on-demand video thing that reached 10,000 people. Ten thousand people when i worked at rap pages the circulation for that magazine was 250,000 people when i worked at the los angeles herald dispatch the circulation the weekly circulation was 60,000 people so i know a little bit about the scale of impact in this regard if you go from star wars to 10,000 people you're messing with your money you're messing with your own personal money so Mostly people don't see me out talking about comics gate because they don't matter. A bad gust of wind doesn't matter because it's all talk. They cannot and will not affect sales or business on a large scale. The closest they've ever come to it are the virulent Snyder cut people and Snyder himself made very certain to disavow them. He said, I'm not with you. You can't sit at my table. That is not what we're doing. And immediately, their shining knight, their great hero, they turned on him. Because where the money resides is not where they live. It's not a neighborhood they can actually get into. And they can only hate from outside the club. So as such, for myself, knowing that I niche cast, knowing that I likewise, you know, Project Wildfire 
I'll be very happy when it goes out in, in November to sell 5,000 copies. But I've also sold 5,000 copies of four Aspen books. I've also sold, you know, multiple other things. I've also reached people through other things. If I only had one road, I would think that I may not be doing enough, but I don't have one road. Does Ethan Van Syver have more than one road? I don't think so. Not anymore. Not really. And seeing that and seeing, you know, there was a kick, Gail Simone posted uh, uh, some pages from one of the Kickstarter books that, that came out of Comic Day. And from a craft standpoint, from a uh, anatomy standpoint, from a visual storytelling standpoint, from a plotting standpoint, it's garbage. In the same way that we don't talk about Christopher Marlowe, who may have been popular to a really rabid group of people, we're not going to be talking about Ethan Van Syver 10 years ago. He's done. And he's mainly trying to stay relevant. Everybody in Comics Gate is less important than him. So I don't need to destroy these people. There's a saying in the, a book called The Teachings of Patao Tep, the oldest book of the world says, if you come into conflict with someone who is not your equal, fold your arms and lean back. They will confound themselves. And I've lived by that very successfully. That's, uh, that's powerful. I, part of me wants to apologize for bringing it up because let's, let's face it, it's it kind of, you didn't use these words, but it's, it's the problem of social media, the vocal minority. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, it shows up in your feed and it, it does what kind of clickbait does. It serves to grab your interest and get you outraged. And if you're not with blockchain. <laughs> not if you block that's right okay that's right hey i mean hey you're right you're right you're right um and part of me always felt feels weird addressing it because let's face it you know, i'm a 30 year old white guy who grew up in austin texas like I, me feeling any sort of outrage about it for on behalf of others doesn't necessarily come across as sincere but at the same time i can't help but feel the way i do about this sort of a thing and i just I don't want to give, I don't want to give them any more attention, but I also, I just, I, I can't, I want to give people the platform to point out their absurdity, essentially. Well, let me possibly reframe this for you then. Yeah. You're not feeling outrage on behalf of me because frankly, again, I don't care. Yeah. yeah. What you're feeling outrage is that there are uh, 24 issues of Mosaic from Jeff Thorne that you will never get to read. That there are, um, how many? There, there are probably you know 50 or 60 transformers issues from brandon easton that you will never get to read and do you know why you will never get to read because the market is working against them not because they're not good enough because good in sales really does not matter ask britney spears mm -hmm. uh but because the market is working against them you don't have to be mad on their behalf you're mad on your behalf for what they've stolen from you they took the opportunity to have deeper richer better content from you for a knockoff nightcrawl and for boobs and and for attacking people that they literally don't know and could not stand against that's not yeah the outrage you feel ain't for me it's for you they they, they i got this i i drove jeff thorne home from WonderCon before uh uh what's the name black panther's quest came out and he told me the entire season story <laughs> He said, I'm probably not supposed to do this, but it won't matter once you see it. So I was like, all right, fine. And he told me the whole thing. And that's not something, the fact that we don't have three more seasons of that, that's the sort of thing that you're mad about. 
<laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> you know, so, you know, in, in back in, back in school, my, the subject of math for me, you just did this, this moment for when you, when you ask, when you're being presented with a new equation and you ask enough questions and finally that flip switches in your head and you're like, ah, I got yep. it. This equation makes sense to me. I can do this in a test from now on. No problem. You just yep. did that. <laughs> That's okay. It makes me feel a little bit selfish that I'm outraged on my own behalf, but you know, it makes more sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> all right okay okay so if it bleeds it leads if it don't make dollars it will it don't make sense uh and all the other stuff that's going on i want to talk about within all of that one theme i keep talking about on here because i've talked to a lot of different creators is that i keep trying to drive home okay first of all are what we've already talked about are you capable of writing that wonderful uh uh, Wolverine comic you're convinced could be better than what's currently out okay great okay well then will it sell are you a name anybody recognize it so on and so forth how do you break into the industry there is no secret sauce to get in the industry it is there has never been one pathway to get into comics for you the pathway is, is just as different for you as it is for everybody else you mm -hmm. uh you you were one of three winners in the 2012 top talent hunt which led mm -hmm. to uh, Artifacts, uh, issue 35. Mm -hmm. But even before that, it was a sort of who you know situation. And Eric Stevenson, who works for Image, uh, is uh, it, what you hired him as an editor at a dot com. And then yep. that all he did was ask if you ever thought about comics. Yep. So let's talk it's... about how you got into it because it's it's hard enough to be successful in this industry, to to as we've already talked about, to be successful in this industry, to do what you want and enjoy in this industry, to keep doing what you want and enjoy in this industry, let alone breaking in in the first place. So yeah. let's 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 talk about getting in. Well, getting in is uh, in many cases a combination of willpower. And, and and looking for a, a weakness in a wall. That if you've ever seen the original movie Tron, where he chucks the uh, uh, disc right into the weak point of the master control program, and that's the moment of it. That's kind of what getting into comics is like. Um, there was a gentleman uh, that I worked with uh, 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 with a company called Unlikely Heroes Studio. He did a book called Super, and he passed away actually a few years ago. And he was one of the most talented writers and artists that I've seen in the industry and i mean he was his line work was clean his his stories were well put together and funny and he was super engaging and this is a white guy right so i'm like oh you got the table run for you you're good nope nobody would call him back nobody would cover his work i was the first person to cover i was the first what he called major outlet to cover super and i ran them a comic-con and uh, I, because I, I used to, well, I went to Comic-Con and people paid me for it, I'd wear a fedora because that was my little on-duty uh, uh, signature. I walked up to their table. I'm like, hey, super. I love this book. They're like, great. We're glad you like it. I'm like, oh, yeah. When I reviewed it, I was, uh, I was like, I'm sorry, are you Hannibal Taboo? I'm like, I am. They jumped up from the table and three people hugged me that I did not know, which I was not comfortable with, but I accepted <laughs> And, you know, these are hardworking, super talented white people, and they were having a hard time. So when I look at my challenges, I think, okay, it's, there are some unfair, you know, uh, uh, tilted playing field issues in, in, at, at, at play there, but they're not all. Uh, when I 
when I talked to Eric about the idea of writing comics, I had never actually thought about it personally. I knew comics had to come from somewhere because I knew somebody had to write them because I knew who Paul Levitz was. I knew that name from the Great Darkness Saga. I knew who Dan Jurgens was. I knew that name from uh, The Death of Superman. So I knew they were actual people, but I never thought about being one because uh, I didn't know much about it. I was writing science fiction novels for myself. I was writing journalism. I was writing my own thing and not really thinking about it. I had, you know, never gotten the industry bug at that point. And I kind of really did. And once I did and I looked at the numbers and I looked at how screwed it was, I was like, all right, you know what? This is, this is, uh, this is an unfair fight. And there are many unfair fights that I've taken on in a kind of a Don Quixote sense, uh, just because I could, you know, I work a day job that pays me fairly decently and I don't need comics. I could walk away today and never think about it again and not lose anything. Um, that allows me a great latitude that allows me to be able to say no to things that allows me to be able to follow the words of uh, Los Angeles poet Kamau Daoud who quoted his mentor. He says, I'm Horace Tapscott and I'm not for sale. Now that doesn't say you can't rent my work, but <laughs> I'm absolutely not for sale. So with that in mind, I can tell the stories that matter to me. I can tell the story of Project Wildfire uh, who lives in the city that I grew up in, who flies around streets that I recognize and talks to people like the people that I went to school with because I didn't see them in the Legion of Superheroes. I didn't see them in the Avengers. I didn't see them in G.I. Joe even with as much as I love Larry Huff. So I'm going to tell my story from my perspective. And doing so means, like I said, it means, it means breaking a lot of eggs. Uh, uh, breaking into comics is not going to be the same as you say for anybody. Many, many panels will tell you that. So, I studied, I overperformed. When the Top Cow Talent Hunt said, we want an eight-page script, they got 22. Um, uh, <laughs> Matt Hawkins subsequently said, don't do that, because I don't want to read a whole bunch of 22-page scripts. Don't do that. But when Hannibal did it, it won. So <laughs> uh, I have always looked to show up and show out in every case that I can. There are going to be people who can write better than me. They're going to be people who are smarter than I. Kevin Grievous, for example, has a degree in some advanced sort form of science. I don't even remember, you know, but they're not going to be people who are going to synthesize it the way that I am. They're not going to be people who are going to be able to work the hustle the specific way that I do and get into the doors that I get into. And as such, that gives me my own lane. I'm not worried about getting anybody else's lane. And again, I'm not really worried about a lot of things. I follow more of a Robert Rodriguez uh, idea of being in Austin, you would know. It's like, no, I don't need to go out to somebody else's studios. I'm going to make my own studio. I'm going to make my own movies. I'm going to do my own things. And I'm going to do it with my own money. And nobody can tell me otherwise. And like a George Clooney, he does your little Spy Kids movie, but then he does something for himself. He does something commercial for the studios. They does something for himself. And that's an intentional business plan because you have to make the dollars. And you can feed those dollars back into what you love and accept that's not going to necessarily turn you into, you know, Tyler Perry, but, you know, you'll be satisfied with your work at the end of the day. And ultimately, I am satisfied with the work that I've done. Huh. That's a lot to think about, quite honestly, because there's a, there is no secret sauce to success in the industry, but there's also no, 
secret sauce to success and just in general it's it's it, it also it, mostly into the fact that of what you define as success mm-hmm. you define it as doing what you doing what you love clearly uh yep. and this is why i framed everything in the david blake rule uh because the name hannibal taboo is not is not up there with scott snyder and everything else but probably happier than scott <laughs> it's, uh, it, at well, the end of the day. <laughs> it's funny you mention that because okay weird side story scott snyder like called me out of the blue like oh a few months ago and we've like kind of halfway started talking to each other he's a fantastic guy i really really like scott snyder yeah, yeah. i can't say that he's not happy there are elements <laughs> of comics that he's not happy about that i'm not at liberty to share right but of course. you know He's a professional writer who gets to see his kid grow up and gets to hang out with his family all day. Yeah. There's nothing wrong there. You know, that's uh, true. There's something I read in college that I remember a lot. It says everyone is walking a difficult struggle. So even though, you know, Paris Hilton has billions of dollars to fall back on, whatever she's going through that day is hard for her. Does that mean it's hard? No, it means it's hard for her. And respecting that struggle for everybody is part of what I really had to do to, you know, kind of recognize that I can't really compare myself to people. Comparison is a thief of joy. I really have to say, where am I? What is my lane? And what are the dollars that I'm trying to make to make this make sense? That's interesting. I, I got to say, Hannibal, and this isn't kissing your ass. I respect you a lot. Uh, Thank you. That's very kind. Yeah. The, because man, I, you know, I, we talked to earlier at, at the beginning of this conversation about my problems with bleeding cool and, and uh, comic, uh, comic book resources and things like that. But you're fair. To, to, to the point where I have thought over and over again, if I just had the money to start my own news, comic news network, man, I would do it. But, you know, there's nothing to hold me back from doing it now. It's just time True. and effort. And, and and maybe capital in terms of buying a website or advertising it out there to get people to look at it. But uh, you, you with the day job, you, but you're and you're still at the end of the day, you're still doing what you love. Which you, which I'm just recapping what you've already said. But doing what you love and and feeling happy with it at the end of the day, and trying to make it as successful as you can. And if it's not the biggest book, then oh well, I'm cool with it. That that's interesting to me and then you take it a little bit further and i want to talk about the content that you write and you can talk about you can talk about any book that you want obviously but i, I wrote down irrational numbers which is a vampire supernatural supernatural <laughs> history book um, yeah as an example something with depth something with more than just vampires it's rooted in something else mm-hmm. uh, that you can dig into uh you yourself uh you practice some spirituality regarding ancient egyptian culture right and mm-hmm. So just, 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 just talk about your, I, I don't want to just, I don't want to just call them influences. They're, they're muses. They're, they're, they're pieces of you that you inject into the comics that you write, because not only are you happy with what you're doing and are you satisfied with it at the end of the day, you're putting a piece of yourself on the page in everything you do. And that's very evident. Mm. Well, uh, uh... I'll, I'll dig it. I, there's one thing that you said that brought something up in my mind. Comic book resources started out as a kingdom come fan site. That's oh. all it was. And over time it grew and it grew and it grew and it became what it is now. So yeah, anything can become anything else. But as to my muses, as to my influences, um, I have two amazing kids. I have an amazing wife. 
and they are interesting and fascinating and they have ways of looking at things that are so drastically different than mine that it sometimes literally stops me in my tracks. And they are inspiring to me both in the, the ideas that they present and the responsibility that I have to them. That I know uh, Jet Lucas will never ever have to work a day in his life because of Jar Jar Binks action figure money. Just the Jar Jar action <laughs> money. Jet, he's got Jet covered. Before you get into the, the, the Gronk droid or, or, or Hammerhead, any of those, just Jar Jar money has got Jet set for life. <laughs> and uh, the reason why Jeff Bezos is rich is because Jeff Bezos' parents were rich. The reason why Bill Gates is rich is because Bill Gates' parents were rich. That generational wealth is the one way that you can assure that people have a better chance of something. So I have a responsibility to them in that regard as well, which is, again, why I'm working the day job. So, um, but beyond that, I um, am fueled by, uh, and I hate to quote Warren Ellis these days with the scandals he's been involved with, oh, yeah. but the desire for a finer world. That I, growing up in Memphis, I remember sitting on the porch, looking out across my front yard. There was a Methodist church across the street, and you know the the roads were in there in okay condition, and there was asphalt and blacktop breaking loose and. I remember storm clouds in the sky and hearing that, oh, there's a tornado across town. And I remember looking out of my front porch and saying, this will not do. This, 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 is, this is not good enough. And I remember thinking that, but thinking, what does that mean? though? And then a few years later, I picked up a book by Douglas Adams, where he talked about the people of cricket, who once they saw the vast monopoly of the universe, they said, oh, this has got to go. And they organized and they got together and they scared the universe in trying to exterminate all life. And I was like, huh, well, that may be a bit extreme, but I see room for, for, for something to happen there. So when I'm writing, I feel the wind of Douglas Adams behind my back. I feel the wind of George Lucas. I feel uh, 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 Chip Delaney and I feel Octavia Butler behind me. Uh, I, I sense the spirit of so many stories that didn't get to be told. Like I said, those seasons of Black Panther, uh, uh, the Avengers cartoon that we'll never get to see because Jeffrey Thorne's not back as a showrunner. You know, I, all of these things fuel me and push me forward in my work. So when I look at the work, I look at it from uh, the perspective of where I am. If I, as I said before, were Paris Hilton, Paris Hilton couldn't tell you the stories about the streets of Memphis because even if she came there, she wouldn't be able to really experience them. She would be able to see them from a bubble of her security, of what's happening there. She wouldn't be able to really experience them. On the other hand, I'm a, I'm a kid who grew up in Memphis, and I've sat at the Beverly Hills Hilton. I've sat at the Four Seasons. across. I'm, I've sat literally next to Hugh Hefner at the Playboy Mansion. I know what they got going on. I seen it. I've been there. So I, can, I have a perspective that's different and that can, can, can tell stories in a way that is going to present a different idea. I'm always looking to present that perspective because if I did this, I don't know who's behind me, uh, who's going to be covering the Playboy Jazz Festival the way I did for years, which is why I was at the Playboy Mansion. I don't know who's going to be behind me uh, uh, coming up doing the same things that I did to get similar press junkets at similar places. I don't know. But if, some, if, if I had been able to see something like, oh, crap, you can do all that kind of crazy stuff, I would have been much crazier earlier. I would have done much wilder, crazier, adventurous thing, more adventurous things earlier, which would have given me more time to develop, develop, develop. And the stuff you see now, when I'm 48, pff, would have been out of control. <laughs>
And that's what I want for the next one. And the one after that, and the one after that. And if it happens, great. If it doesn't happen, I'm going to be dead. I won't really know the difference. Like, uh, uh, like what's the name? O'Brien said in 1984, Orwell says, we will take part in the future as handfuls of dust and splinters of bone. In the face of the thought police, there is no other way. Hmm. Man, you just keep hitting me with these things. I want to pivot to, to Minneapolis sound in a second, but um, sure. let's, let's, I want to give you, because I didn't get a chance to read them myself. Uh, we, we discussed that off air, but the, the New Paradigm Studios works, Aspen stuff uh, with, mm-hmm. with, with Fathom, with Soulfire, uh, things like that. Top Cow, you've got Artifacts. I'm on. I'm just on your website right now. Time Core, uh, Irrational Numbers, and Scoundrel mm-hmm. over at Wonder Man, and then the Operative Network. You were talking about Project Wildfire earlier. Mm-hmm. Any of those in particular that you want to talk about your your process and in, in? I mean, I'm I'm sure they were all passion projects in their own right. But any of those sort of stand out to you as something that the the you know start to finish of was unique or or something that uh you wish got some more eyes on it i mean obviously everything we want to we want to get more eyes on but anything in particular well i'll start from the macro um the process is pretty uniform across anything that i'm working on uh normally i will have a glimpse of something i'll have a moment that's ultimately going to develop as a scene or whatever and i'll say oh that's what this is who are those people and then whoever's in the scene, I uh, take the old format of a Marvel handbook of the universe and I start writing a character writing. Uh, what can they do? Where are they from? How tall are they? What are their parents like? So on and so forth. And I start to develop who they are as a person. Then I start outlining. Outlining is the most important thing to me because as a father and a person who, and a husband and a person who works a day job, I can walk away from an outline and come back and be okay. When you use Waze on your GPS in your car, that's what an outline is. It puts a pin on the map and it keeps telling me which way to go. Even if I drive the wrong way, even if I kind of meander a little bit, it'll keep pointing me in the right way. And that's what the outline is. So uh, the outline is the map and the script is the territory itself. So I start scripting. The, ones that, the one that's different to me, that's really different to me is Project Wildfire because Project Wildfire is the closest to my personal experience without being me. Will Watson III is uh, Will Watson III is is what many people may have hoped I was going to be, because he is a genuinely, truly good soul. Whereas, you know, in the words of Brother Jay, I take the good with the bad, and sometimes do a little bit of both. Um, <laughs> that's a little that's a degree of moral flexibility, uh, to quote Martin Blank, that Will Watson could never have. He would never be. Um, and with Project Wildfire. The thing that's great about me is the scene that I really saw was the last scene, the last scene of the entire story. And scrolling back from that to get to where we are now, which is years and years down the line for you guys, but for me, it's a just an outline in Scrivener on my uh, <laughs> on my my iPad. Um, to to see that process and to see people discover different things in it, to see that you know uh, I had somebody. I had somebody direct message me on Twitter and say, I was reading Project Wildfire and it said this thing about this, uh, 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 it said uh, this thing about Northern Lights. And then I went on the operative network site and I saw Northern Lights are villains in this other thing. 
are these things connected? I said, are they? And they're like, wait, so you've planned it? I'm like, did I? <laughs> and I don't really need to, you know, go into the details because I'm not going to spoil the story for them. But it should be a surprise for them. I already know it. Uh, but to be able to connect those things and to be able to show the degree of uh, these things all working together in a way that, you know, like the way when you saw, wait a minute, Kobayashi on the bottom of the cup and Kaiser so says what? And he's, and verbal didn't have a limp. Wait, what? And the way those things all start to collect together that way. Um, that's the sort of storytelling that really rewards me. Uh, whether people ever find the, the Easter eggs or not. I'm not honestly picky uh, whether they do or not. Um, Cause I know they're there. Uh, so project wildfire is, the deepest uh because i've gotten the most time with it i've gotten the most time to massage it and to create it as something uh i don't often say this but um i might as well say it to record it for once project fire project wildfire is act one the entire story of project wildfire is simply act one and to get into that is one of my greatest joys because literally there's only one person in the world, Quinn McGowan, who knows where I'm going. And when people see it, when people when it pops up, especially because he talks to a lot more people than I do, when people see it, the amusement that we get is just really overwhelming. We we have to work very hard not to spoil it uh, because it's 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 a great joy for people to discover some uh, something that you left for them. Uh, so yeah, Project Wildfire is probably the the most unusual and the most unique of those experiences. Yeah, I saw an article on uh, on Previews World uh, that you and Quinn signed with Second Sight. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that was, I think, early March that I saw that article. Um, yes, sir. But uh, man, so if it's supposed to come out in November, what it'll be uh, September previews. It'll be September previews, and it is coming out bi monthly. The best yeah. part is we've already finished nine issues, so <laughs> <laughs> you know it's not like you're gonna be like. Oh, these guys are late. No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of previews, man, that's how I found you. Uh, doing doing those tweets on the stuff that uh, catches my eye that I'm interested in. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I wanted to kind of use that to, to pivot on over to, um, to uh, Minneapolis Sound from Humanoids. I became aware of Humanoids because of our mutual friend Kwanzaa. Mm-hmm. uh kwanzaa i had on to talk a bit about black and then he was telling me what was going on with uh with humanoids in terms of ignited and then uh, omni and and uh, uh strange lands and all that stuff mm-hmm. uh so i've been paying attention to humanoids uh and then i see this solicit uh for minneapolis sound and it gets my attention because i'm somebody who like i mentioned at the beginning of all this who really enjoys music uh Mm -hmm. uh, and the history of music and particularly the 60s and the 70s which is interesting to me because not only will this book give me something to to look forward to it'll give me a chance to learn a little bit because as much Mm -hmm. as i love music uh in the 60s and 70s prince didn't really become a thing uh until you know late late 70s or early 80s if you want to say that so he's not necessarily in my wheelhouse but with books the books that were uh out uh books 
I just want to say that there there was a bunch of books that had hit in this sort of uh, span of time that I was really excited about. There was Rock Stars, there mm-hmm. was Killer Groove, there was Gunning for Hits, and then there was this just this wave of books with just music at the center. Mm-hmm. And I want you. I, I was born and raised in Austin, Texas, which is widely considered the live music capital of the world. I'm one of the few people I think I guess left who was a true blue local. You were mm-hmm. raised up in, in Memphis, Tennessee, and then yep. this thing happens in Minneapolis. Let's talk about the Minneapolis music scene before we even get into this story, because you're talking. Two people right now are talking on the line who know the importance of music in in. And just in general, but in the the in the community, what music means to mm-hmm. people and the livelihood uh, and the vibrance of the place in which you live. Let's talk a bit about Minneapolis. All right. Well, Minneapolis has many many claims to fame in terms of music. When uh, through the through the seventies and through the eighties, one third of all of the cassette tapes that came out in anywhere went through Minneapolis um, there with groups like the replacements and Husker do. And there was, there was a, a very vibrant indie rock punk rock scene that uh, was making money hand over fist. But in time, as time went on, they became the Christopher Marlowe of the story because uh, Prince not only laid down his own imprint for what was happening, but Prince then whole cloth, created Morris Day in the time for music that he thought was quote unquote too black for his own brand, but that he still wanted to do, he still wanted to put out. And then when he thought he had songs that were too feminine for his quote unquote brand, he made Vanity Six. And then for people just standing around, people working with him, Andre Simone got tired of, of, of Prince's ego and says, I'm gonna go off and do my own thing. And Prince was like, screw you, you'll never do nothing. And Andre Simone comes up with Jody Watley. And then <laughs> uh, as members of, of the band that he hired to be the time, because on the records for Morris Day the time, there's only Morris and Prince. Prince plays all of those records, all of those instruments. He p- does all of the background. All of that is Prince and Morris alone in the studio. They learn the songs. And there was a great, uh, uh, there was a great podcast that, uh, uh, that uh, Questlove does where he had uh, uh, Jimmy Jam on as a guest. And Jimmy Jam talks about it like, yeah, Prince was able to kick our butts individually, but as a group, no. <laughs> as a group, we the time would play the revolution off the stage every night. Prince got so sick of us because together we were better than any band he could field. And he knew that. But the problem was we wanted to make more money. So Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis start producing. They start doing Midnight Star. They start working with Clarence Avant and so on and so forth. And Prince essentially fires them from the time. So they're like, okay. And then they come up with Janet Jackson. And then, they, <laughs> you know, and then they're doing the human league and then boom, boom, boom. So all of these tendrils that influenced pop music throughout the eighties and nineties started with Prince being too short to play basketball with Prince's music teacher telling him you're the best bass player that this school has ever seen and him not wanting to play bass but him wanting more than anything to be a star. That's the one thing he said. Music was just the avenue he happened to have the talent and he happened to have the opportunity for. And through that, 
he gained the global notoriety that he desperately claimed as a short dude with a big hairdo from Minneapolis in the 70s that couldn't get no play, that reportedly stood outside of a burger joint to smell the burgers he couldn't afford to buy. Because again, that economic uh, 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 disparity was still there. Most of the people working at that factory where they made all those uh, uh, cassette tapes on the south side of Minneapolis were black people shipping out cassettes that they would not listen to. Mm. That was, wasn't made for them. Uh, this is the same Minneapolis that again, went on to kill George, uh, 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 George Floyd. Uh, so, you know, th- th- there's not been that much change from uh, the standpoint of people there. I, I specifically went and interviewed two people who grew up in Minneapolis for this book. Uh, one of whom was a, a white lady who, uh, she, her perspective was invaluable in terms of geography. She was able to tell me, oh, well, this store is here and these stores aren't in this part of town and this looks like this. And when you drive from here, it does this, which was super useful for me in, in, in notes like that. The black person that was able to talk to me about the realities of life, there, about the four lines of Minneapolis where like me, they knew not to cross. The areas where they thought were safe, the areas where they wouldn't feel as safe. Those sorts of things influenced the work uh, in, in a different way. So putting that all together in a melange, working alongside Joe Illich, who's been putting together killer stuff for longer than I've even been in comics, uh, hopefully has come up with a product that people will really be able to enjoy. It will really mean a lot to a lot of people. Yeah. So let's let's take that, guys. So I'm over on the Humanoids website. Let's read the solicit. The ultimate love letter to the funky pump, uh, pop rock sound that made the artist formerly known as Prince a legend. When Prince burst onto the music scene in 1978, he put Minneapolis on the map. Consequently, many up-and-coming acts followed the, the trail that he blazed. This is the story of Star Child, a group that almost made it to stardom in 1983, led by a young woman whose desire to change the world through her music ignited a revolution. Through Star Child's journey, MPLS Sound, which is Minneapolis Sound, chronicles from a distance the rise of a musical genius and the rebirth of a city. So let's talk now about the project, man. I, it, as you guys hear this, if you're listening to it on the day I come out, this uh, episode is hitting on uh, April 14th, which is the day after the official release of the trade, but it's new comic book day. So mm-hmm. let's give people a chance to, to, to go check out the trade. We've got Joe, uh, Joe Illich, which you mentioned as a writer alongside you. And we have Meredith Laxton on the art, Tan Shu mm-hmm. as the colorist, and Jen Barteld, who did the cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just happy to see music and comics again, quite overall. But I've noticed something. Now, let's 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 shine a light briefly uh, on, on Meredith, because as, as much as you can tell the story of music uh, mm-hmm. with a script and with a plot, man, your artist... Uh, and and then your colorist tan uh mm-hmm. there's there's something about music that translates to art and you just have to have the right partners on the art to to do it right to mm-hmm. make to make it f- not not only to show them playing the music but the feel and the atmosphere from the crowd the way it impacts people there it, there's so many nuances to the art let's talk about the art in this book Okay. Well, one of the things, and I, it's interesting because it was an influence in my thinking that I purposefully chose not to put into the script, but that ended up coming out anyway. There used to be a cartoon called Jim and the Holograms. 
Oh, yeah. And uh, I loved freaking Jim. Well, let me correct that. I loved the misfits on Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Jim was cool. Don't get me wrong. Jim got some slapping hits. Don't get me wrong. But I love the misfits. My daughter right now, she's 11. She knows the opening chords to Universal Appeal because she's heard it played in my car so many times. <laughs> um, so there's a kind of energy that uh, uh, the, this kind of neon 80s vibe uh, of, of music and, and visuals come together and the way that crowds react to that, that was kind of playing in the background of my thing. But I purposefully chose not to put that in the script. When I used reference images, when I used things like that, I picked specific shots of specific shows. I picked specific areas and specific actual real life people. And when I see them pop up on the page and they're freaking Jim with the holograms, I'm like, oh, snap. <laughs> I'm like, I guess that's just what we were doing back in the 80s, I guess. Okay, sure. Um, and and the, the work shown there is really, and to have, a Minneapolis native, Jen Bartell, doing the cover really, I think, per provided the perfect capstone for it, really encapsulated what we were trying to, to come up here. What what really, because all this is, okay, I got to stop and tell you the story of how this happened. So yeah, go ahead. This all starts when I get a call out of the blue from someone I do not know named Fabrice Sapolsky. Fabrice was one of the co-creators of Spider-Man Noir, and he was at the time working at, at Humanoids. And he's like, Hannibal, I, I, I've been looking at your work. I want to talk to you about some things. Would you mind coming up to my office for a meeting? I'm like, uh, whatever, sure. So I took the morning off of work, my day job, and I go over to Humanoid's uh, office. And he's like, all right, I'm going to need you to sign this NDA. I'm like, uh, okay, whatever. So I read through it and make sure I'm not giving away anything dangerous. And I sign the NDA. He's like, all right, great. Here's the deal. And he starts telling me about H2, about Omni and about Ignited and all these plans. I'm like, and how he's going to change publishing and still do all this stuff. I'm like, whoa, that sounds really dope. He's like, really? It does. Great. Okay. Forget about it. You don't care about it. I'm like, what? What do you mean I don't care about it? <laughs> he's like, the real reason I called you here is this. And he starts to lay out his idea for MPLS sound. <laughs> and he's like, you worked in music journalism. You, you know these venues, you know the acts, you've done all these things. So I think you're perfectly suited to be the first person to start out with. I'm like, okay, yes, but so the other stuff, not at all? He's like, you don't <laughs> care about any of that. I'm like, I might. He's like, no, you don't care about it. Uh, I'm like, all right, whatever, let's roll with it. And we started working on it. And um, same process I mentioned before, we look at outlines, we look at character, uh, uh, character sketches, we we start to craft the people of, of MPLS sound. Uh, one thing that was really hard for me to learn in my research was the really relentless colorism that Prince put forth. But Prince put that colorism forth because of the David Blake rule. He knew that if he put Brown Mark up there as the leading man of a band, that he was not going to be able to sell them. He was not going to be able to make that work. He knew that. So he picked his much less threatening, short friend, Morris Day, and put him at the front of the band and sent him out there. And here we still are with Kevin Smith talking about it decades later. And seeing that, so the first thing I was like, all right, well, first, the lead of the book has got to be a dark-skinned woman. She's got to be. She's got to be a dark-skinned woman. And I thought about a woman I worked with. There was a woman I worked with named Teresa at a company called Image Magazine, who, uh, like, and this is before I knew that she was working there, so I didn't. It wasn't like inappropriate. I was at the launch party and I see this woman standing off to the side 
and I just beeline at her. I go at her like nonstop. I'm like, hi, I'm Hannibal. And she's like, hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm just talking to her. And she keeps looking at me like, why are you talking to me? <laughs> and she had this friend of hers named Jessica next to her. And while I'm talking to her, like nine guys come up and talk to Jessica. And she bats them all the way, bats them all the way, bats them all the way. And Teresa kept looking over at Jessica, who was drastically lighter skinned than her. They've been best friends since college. And looking at me like, he's still talking to me. He's not trying to talk to her at all. Like, cause Jessica had asked me something. I was like, yeah, sure. And I, <laughs> I wasn't paying any attention to her. And that dynamic played out in my head for t- who, the character who became Teresa Booker in the, in the thing. Then uh, for her counterpart, Ellis Booker, her brother, uh, there was a guy who went to my, high, my junior high named Ellis Booker. And in eighth grade, Ellis was six foot three and 230 pounds. I mean, he was just this gigantic man already in, in, in eighth grade. And, uh, but still, just super sweet guy, super funny, uh, but didn't really, you know, deal with any shenanigans. And I was like, yep, putting you together, you two are siblings. Perfect. And that was the core of the work. Uh, <laughs> and, and developing these sorts of things uh, was a great pleasure because, again, you know, nobody was going to tell Ellis Book his story. Nobody was going to tell Teresa's story. You know, they, I wasn't going to be able to see them coming out with all due respect from a Cullen Bunn or from a Gail Simone, who are wonderful people who I've, I've dealt with all the time and definitely like, but they can't tell the same stories that I do. They don't know these characters the way that I do. them. So I was really glad to see them brought to life and, and realized in, in such a real way by Meredith and the rest of the creative team. Yeah, so you, you said something. So first of all, everybody listening, before I even talk to Hannibal, when I tweet it, when, when I tweet on the Creative Credit Twitter, and I know there's not very many followers over there, but when I tweet over there, when I talk about the books of previews that I find interesting, I buy every single one of those. I pre-order them. I pre-ordered in, in uh, Minneapolis Sound before I've ever talked to Hannibal because <laughs> I, I was down for this. Uh, it was music back in comics. It was interesting. And it was from a publisher I trust, Humanoids. So uh, I'm already I'm already sold on this, and he's 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 not getting extra money from me uh, now that I've spoken to him. I was already he already had it. Something you said was interesting to me when he pitches you what's happening with uh, with with Omni and Ignited, basically the H1 line. Mm-hmm. It sounded to me. Did you did you hint that there's going to be more music stuff coming? I well, I can't speak for I can't speak for what's going to come out because I don't know. You know, I was hired, I was hired to do this gig so long ago that I don't even. I spent the money for this gig before the pandemic. That's how long ago that you <laughs> yeah. know. So I don't know, I don't know what they're going to do, but <laughs> because as we're seeing, the business is changing. Yeah, that's true. So I can't say what's going to happen one way or another. I do know that uh, the Life Drawn line, which if I remember correctly, that's what this is done on with humanoids. They have an interest in stories that touch on 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 real lives uh so i wouldn't i wouldn't count it out i would definitely say if this sells like crazy that you know there would definitely be room for them to make that consideration that'd be a logical business consideration any business would make but i don't have any inside information gotcha okay i i i always hesitate to ask questions like that because i've i've done this long enough i know nobody can talk about future stuff but (laughs) i had to ask um one interesting concept to me in comics is always the, the co-writer thing. Talk a bit about that. The the your your work with Joe Illich. 
and how you guys collaborate on this. What, what did, did y'all split the chores? Did y'all just sort of work together on this, you know, jump on a zoom call or something? I mean, well, this, this was obviously pre pandemic. So, you know, meet with each other and, and just work it out together script wise, or you take page one, I take page two, like how explain to the people how co-writing works. Well, what, what happened was that uh, there are different, there are different aesthetics and different, different uh, uh, ideas about, what uh, uh, is how things are supposed to go from inside the humanoid. So I was Fabrice's guy. Fabrice is like, Hannibal's the guy I want. And uh, there are other people at humanoids like, oh, we love Joe. Joe is the guy we want. So instead of it being an argument, it's like, just put them together, it's fine. So <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the structure, the characters, a lot of that is stuff that I came up with. So you'll still see uh, lots of, you'll still see most of what I came up in there. Joe was brought in in a kind of a, a refinement phase because Joe, like I said, has been making comic books professionally since I was in college. So Joe was brought in to kind of uh, uh, give this something that that uh, uh, the other aesthetic element of of uh, uh, humanoids could 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 find palatable. So once we were able to merge those visions together into one script and everybody was happy with it, then it was shipped off to the art side. Um, that was an interesting process, and it di did not have it did not go without some bumps in the night. But everybody's still friends. Nobody's angry at each other. You know, you're not going to see uh, like I like I forget which uh, uh, I was at a convention once, and I saw these two comics professionals. I won't name names because it doesn't matter. Uh, but like one of them takes a swing at the other one in the middle of a crowded restaurant, and you know. <laughs> Those aren't the stories that you're going to see come out. Where everybody, we work together in a very amicable way, and everybody's very happy with the product that came out. So, you know, uh, but yeah, it 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 was an interesting and new pr process because I've always mostly just worked by myself. Uh, sometimes with an editor, like at Wonderman Comics, I get editorial notes from Nate Wonderman. But yeah, there were a lot of voices. There were a lot of voices involved in the creation of this book, from Fabrice to Joe to other people at Humanoids, and taking that all into account if i understand what i'm told is a lot more like making a tv show so you know uh i i can i can definitely say this is me this is me this is me if i if i go through it page by page but it's really a team effort it's really a collaborative effort to bring one larger goal to the to the market I, I can't wait to read it, man. I told you I bought in and pre-ordered uh, after I read the solicit in previews when it when it when it was out. Um, I'm excited to get to to know about it. I'm excited to go back and and find some of your other works and and read through that. I'm excited about what's coming up for you. And speaking of, uh, let's let's talk about. It. We've we've already talked about what Project Wildfire. Uh, quite a bit, but any other projects, or if you want to elaborate more on Project Wildfire, or anything in particular you want to talk about, uh, Minneapolis Sound that we haven't already touched on, man, this is this is your time before we close out the the conversation. Uh, what do you got in the in the pipeline that you can talk about? Uh, what's happening for you, my man? All right, well, real quickly, Project Wildfire is just basically a college sophomore pulls one of those things to sign up for a medical experiment because he wants help paying for books and tuition. Um, he takes the medical experiment. Uh, with uh, 19 other people, all 19 die, he gets superpowers. Um, <laughs> he gets this just in time as a rash of people turning into giant monsters starts to happen in his city. And he is the only one with the power to save people from this rash of, of kaiju basically uh, attacking his town. And that's project. That's the, the core of Project Wildfire. Of course, if you're listening to what I just said, you're like, wait a minute, 
that should raise like a thousand questions and all of those questions are completely part of the story um <laughs> that's uh gonna be november in uh, uh comic book shops from second sight publishing and it'll be in september previews uh and like i said we've already got nine issues of it done so since we're doing it bi-monthly yeah you're not gonna see that be late probably ever because we're literally working on issue 10 now um so that's fun uh then oh yes uh from wonderman comics i've got a new three issue supernatural western miniseries coming out called war medicine uh wonderman comics really likes historical fiction they really like which has been the books i've done thus far which were scoundrel and irrational numbers a little bit of that happens in time core which is more science fictiony but still got a real looking and researching the past feel to it there's an issue coming up of time core which i wrote where it takes place at the berlin conference and it's got a woman who is an escaped slave who is forced to wrestle with the fact that she's got to make sure that the conference goes off without a hitch, even though she thinks that's the worst possible thing in the world. Um, so lots of fun there. But uh, War Medicine is about a woman who is uh, a half black, half Cheyenne, raised by the Cheyenne people, and her entire band is killed. And the reason why is not very good. She goes on a real like kind of Lee Marvin uh, kind of quest for vengeance, basically. Gets real Charles Bronson with it and, and just kind of plows her way through the Oklahoma Plains in issue one, uh, through New Orleans in issue two, and finally landing in Liberia in issue three to settle uh, uh, what actually happened there. And it's, it's a very deeply researched story. I had to spend a lot of time learning a lot of Cheyenne phrases that I did not know. Uh, and I probably screwed up the syntax on many of them, to be honest with you, but I, I, I tried. That's what editors um, are for. And yeah, well, hopefully. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, so that's going to be, uh, that's going to be coming out. I just turned in issue three, the final script. Uh, the artist is, uh, oh shoot, come on. His name is Roy Allen Martinez. He worked on some of the Zorro books, uh, with one of my good friends, David Avalone. And, um, yeah, he's cranking. He just turned in, I think, the last page of issue one. So we should be soliciting that within a few months. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to seeing that come out. And I think that's all I'm supposed to talk about. I don't know. That you can talk about. <laughs> yeah, because for me, for me, I like uh, what Doctor Who say. I, I don't live in the future. I just work there. Um, <laughs> I've done. I'm like, so I've written a whole bunch of stuff because it was like, it was two years after I wrote MPLS Sound before it actually people started talking about. It. I was like, "Oh, we're talking about this now." Oh, okay, good, all right. And then still, I'm like in my brain, I'm like, "Am I allowed to say this thing that happens on that?" Part? Okay, no, not that yet. Okay, don't do that. Okay, got it. So, my brain is this mishmash of timelines trying to figure out at which point I'm at and and trying not to screw it up. <laughs> all right man well it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you i do want to say guys all those books that hannibal just mentioned i, I this should go without saying but you ha i have to tell you guys if you're interested pre-order if you go and pick up that book off the shelves and you haven't talked to your lcs your local comic shop and told them that you're interested in it it's very unlikely that they will you will have issue two waiting for you or issue three small publishers True. small publishers live and die often by what you sub to at your lcs you have mm -hmm. to tell your lcs i want this book i like this book continue getting it for me 
because if they don't see the numbers on it, they're not going to get it. So you're going to end up with books that you're like, oh, that issue one was great. I'll be here next week for, or, or next month or two months from now for issue two. And it's not on the shelves because it's either sold out or they didn't order it. You have mm-hmm. to tell people you want this book. So if any of these sound interesting to you, please tell your local comic shop. They're always happy to create a pull list for you, even if it's just one book and, uh, and, and help you out with getting whatever you want. So please, please do that for any of the projects Hannibal mentioned. Hannibal, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, man, I, we, we, we thought we might've done this with, uh, with some other people, but at the end of the day, man, I'm glad we didn't. Cause this was, this was a fun conversation I had with you, man. You're very kind. I'm very happy to be here. This was great. All right, uh, guys, we will talk to you later. And that was my conversation with Hannibal Taboo. As stated in the introduction, I had a hell of a time conversing with Hannibal. Our conversation was raw and real and most certainly more of a conversation than an interview. I hope you guys enjoyed our talk. Ironically, immediately after Hannibal and I hung up the line, he got a notification that Time Corps number 16 from Wonderman Comics would be hitting this very week. That is the week of April 14th. So be on the lookout for the latest issue of Time Corps as well as the Humanoids trade paperback Minneapolis Sound. Don't say I did not give you guys a heads up. Next episode is actually already in the can. So who will I be speaking with? That brings us to our tease from the introduction. While speaking with anyone in the comic industry is a wide sample group as it is, I want to go even further. After all, the comic book industry has tendrils in so many other facets of entertainment and business. And to understand this industry, you have to understand where the audience is sometimes. So to that end, I actually got an incredible chance to speak with actor Joe Denical one-on-one. Joe has been in a number of things, but is probably best known by comic fans for his portrayals of Roy Regan, a.k.a. Ragman, on the CW show Arrow. I could not pass up the opportunity to speak with him, and I think our conversation gives a glimpse for the comic fans into how your favorite stories translate into television and the work it actually takes to get them there. I've also spoken with some comic book store owners and have plans coming up to speak with them about the behind the scenes of the comic business as a whole. To get to the business perspective on how things work behind the counter where your favorite titles are sold. If you'd like to follow the show, you can follow us on Twitter at creativecredit underscore. You can also send an email to lanterncast at gmail.com and be sure to mention creative credit in the subject line. Until next time, remember, Marvel or DC, television or film, print or digital, we're all comic fans. And as Billy Joel once said, if you're not doing what you love, you're wasting your time.
The views and opinions expressed by the guests on Creative Credit do not necessarily reflect those of the host. Creative Credit is not affiliated with any comic industry publisher unless otherwise mentioned. Music for the show was produced by the Bad Mamma Jammas from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, found at Bad Mamma Jammas on Facebook.